uh, immediately, relentlessly, he condemns us. He says how dirty we are, and we are because we sin, how unworthy we are, how, how guilty we are. And then he lies to us, and he says God doesn't want to be around you anymore. Hey everyone, welcome to our sermon from the 3rd of July, and today's message is from Sean Doyle, and is called Getting Back on Track. Over to you, Sean. Good morning to you. <clears throat> Have you ever really messed up spiritually? Have you ever experienced uh, a, such a significant spiritual failure that you begin to wonder, you know, can God ever use me again? Today's text tackles an immensely practical spiritual reality. When we have failed, when we have spiritually derailed, how do we get back on track? You agree that's probably helpful for most Christians to think about? How do we get back on track? Today we are in the book of Joshua. I've been taking us through Joshua when I come once a month, and we are now in Joshua chapter 8. And Joshua chapter 8 is the chapter that immediately follows, well, Joshua chapter 7. <laughs> but if you remember from Joshua chapter 7, uh, we saw God's people's surprising, crushing, thrashing at little old I. They were badly beaten at little old I. Now, little old I, I was a city in ruins. It didn't have walls like Jericho. It didn't look formidable. Uh, it should have been an absolute pushover. An easy place to overcome. Think about where the Israelites were as we've been going through uh, the story. After crossing the Jordan River at full flood stage and marching around and then shouting down the mighty walls of Jericho, uh, God's people were, were sort of brimming with confidence, almost bordering on hubris. And so in chapter 7, General Joshua sends the spies out to recon little old I, and the spies, full of bravado, they say this, they say, well, psh, not all the people need to go up against I. I sent two or three thousand men to take it. Don't weary the people, for only a few men are there. However, the spies were wrong about the size of I and the soldiers it could muster when attacked. And so uh, God's people made a critical error. They failed to inquire of the Lord before going into battle. And Israel was royally routed. And 36 of God's people, 36 of the Hebrew soldiers were slaughtered. And what you need to understand is this was unheard of and unprecedented in Hebrew combat. Uh, no one was lost when they faced down the mighty Pharaoh. No one. And when they fought Sihon and Og on the west of the Jordan, no one was lost. And when they faced down mighty walls of Jericho, no one was lost. But at little old I, 36 men die. And Israel tastes the bitterness of defeat for the very first time. And why did they taste the defeat? Well, because they didn't inquire of the Lord before engaging in the battle. And when they finally did inquire of the Lord, this is what they learned. The Lord said, I'm not going to go with you to attack I. I'm not going to help you in this battle until you deal with the sin that's in your midst. Now, they didn't know this was the problem. But if they would have asked the Lord before battle, which is what they were supposed to do whenever the Hebrews went into battle, they would have learned this was the problem. The problem was there was this one dude named Achan, and he has taken 
some of the devoted things that belong to God. Uh, Jericho was the very first city Israel was called to conquer. And so in the Bible, you have this principle of first fruits. And since this was the first place of conquest, God said, everything in that city is harim. It's utterly irrevocably consecrated to me. You're to keep none of it. You're to either put it in the, in the uh, altar and offering or to totally burn it up. Nothing is to be for you. This is an offering to me. The problem is the heart of man. These people had been slaves for 400 years. They had nothing as they traveled in the wilderness. They didn't even get new shoes for 40 years, right? So they show up and they see this city and it's wealthy. And a man they make it, well, he sees a, a sliver of silver. He sees a wedge of gold. He sees some fine garments and he covets them. And, and once his heart is given over to them, it didn't take long for his hands to abscond with them. He coveted them, he took them, and then he hid them in his tent and roped his whole family in. And the Bible says in verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, this is back in chapter 7, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they put them with their own possessions. And this is why. The Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they've been made liable to destruction. And then God says, I'm not going to be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now, if you go back to chapter 7, you listen to the sermon again, you look at the text, you're going to see Achan never repents. He's given every opportunity. God bends over backwards. There's a night of consecration. He doesn't repent. There's the, the loss of the soldiers. He doesn't repent. God calls people forth by tribe. He doesn't repent. Then by clan, he doesn't repent. Repent. He calls them by family. He doesn't repent. They calls to him. And even when he's caught, he never repents. He just admits what he can no longer hide. And that's Achan's problem, right? And so... Um, we have this great challenge of, of Achan never repenting, but he's finally outed. And, and so Israel had to purge the nation of this wickedness, of this unrepentant sin. Now in chapter 8, we're, we're now in our text today. In chapter 8, it is a new day after many hard days. It is a new day after many hard days. It's a day when Israel is no longer full of swagger. It's a day when God's people are, are more than a bit gun-shy to, to give engaging the enemy a second try. And they worry, hey, what if we do this again and lose again? What if God doesn't help us anymore? They begin to wonder, you know, can we ever venture forth and, and, and take ground for God again? Maybe you can relate if we've been Christians long enough, there probably will become a sometime when we have a spiritual derailment and uh, we wonder, how do I get back on track? I know I'm not where I need to be, but I don't really know how to get back to where I ought to be. And I just know I've created a mess of everything that used to be. Can you relate to that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the title of our sermon today is Getting Back on Track. Getting Back. On track, And so if you would put getting back on track into the front of your, uh, your brain housing group here, uh, let's turn in the word of the Lord. And before we do, let's turn to the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time in his text today. Lord Jesus, this is your church. These are your people. This is your word. You have breathed it out by your Holy Spirit. You have preserved it by your sovereign power. Tyrants have burned it. Governments have banned it. And yet here we are, hundreds of years, I think 1,400 years from the time of Christ, and then 2,000 years 
from Christ to us, like 3,400 years, this true story, this history is his story. This is your work and your people. And we're so grateful that there's a place, as indeed many places in the Bible, but this is a place where after we mess it all up, you graciously invite us back to your work and you show us how to get back on track. And so I pray that today, Joshua 8 which might be one of those little-known throwaways, would instead be something we stow away and, and, and store up so that when we need to get back on track and when there's another brother and they've derailed and they need to get back on track, we can go back and look at these principles, these four principles from this text of how to get back on track and then the fifth principle of how to stay on track because we don't want to be derailed. <laughs> And uh, we want to, to, to be where you want us to be. So please help me to be able to convey the truths of your word. And I pray that you'd speak to every single person today, those who are physically present and those who will listen to this virtually, that you would speak that it would be like apples of silver and settings of gold as a word aptly spoken. We ask that you would roar from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so there's 35 verses today. Hang with me. Uh, the Bible says in... Joshua chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, first thing, who came to who here? God came to his people or his people came back to God? God came to his people. And you see that everywhere. When, when Adam sinned, who came first? Adam hid. And God said, Adam, where are you? Not because Adam was lost in God's eyes. God knows everything. But he wanted Adam to come back. Always God pursuing us. So here we go. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I want you to take the whole army with you and go up and you attack I. For I have delivered into your hands the king of I and his people and his city and his land. And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Except, you know what? Now you may carry the plunder and livestock for yourselves. See, if old Achan would have just waited, <laughs> it wouldn't have been the first fruits. And he would have been able to take some stuff. But he wouldn't wait patiently on the Lord. But God says, now you can have it. And he says, and I don't want you to uh, take just a few soldiers like you did. I want you to take the whole army. And he says, I want you also to do a military maneuver that's different than what I had you do at Jericho. I want you to set an ambush behind this city. Verse 3, so Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 of his very best fighting men. And he set them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You're to set an ambush behind the city of Ai. Don't go very far from it. Uh, all of you will be on the Lord. And, 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 and all those with me will advance to the city. And when the men come out of the city, the men of Ai come out to attack us as they did before, we're going to flee. We're going to make a feint. We're going to make it look like we're running away like we did last time. Verse 6, and they will pursue us until we've lured them away from their city. For they will say, ah, they're running away from us just like they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from your ambush and you are to take the city. And the Lord your God will give it in your hands. And when you have taken the city, burn it down. Set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it, you have my orders. And then Joshua sent off that party. And they went to the place of the ambush. And they lay in wait between Bethel and Ai. Because Bethel could rise and defend its friend. Bethel's not very far away. And they have an army. And so to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night with the main fighting force of the people. Verse 10. Early the next morning Joshua mustered his men. And he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. And the entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai. With the valley between them and the city. So there's this big open valley. God's people have assembled. The men of Ai go, okay, they're coming again. Verse 12. 
Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai. So there's 30,000 men hiding behind the city to burn it down. And there's 5,000 men to cut off resupply if Bethel sends forces. You with me? If you've got a map here in your head, this is what's happening. This is to the west of the city. The main element of the army is to the north in the valley where you can see them. The hidden people are behind the city and cutting off Bethlehem. All right. That night, Joshua went into the valley. And when the king of Ai saw this, he saw only the army to the north. He and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Verse 15. Joshua and all Israel themselves allow themselves to be driven back before them, and they fled into the desert. So the, the, the bad guys come, and it looks like they're winning again. And the good guys run away again. And the bad guys think, woohoo, we got this. Verse 16, and all the men of Ai were called to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. So this was the trap. This was, these guys are so easy. Don't leave any reserves behind to protect the city. Just wipe these dudes out. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. So Bethel did send some forces. They left the city open. They went in pursuit of Israel. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out towards Ai, the javelin that's in your hand. For into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out the javelin towards Ai. And as soon as he did this, the men in ambush, the 30,000, they arose quickly from their positions and they rushed forward and they entered the city and they captured it, because there's nobody to defend it, and they, they set it on fire. Now, think about, you're these guys that thought you had a pushover battle, you run out, you send all your forces out. Verse 20, and the men of Ai, well, they looked back and they saw the smoke of the city rising, their homes and their defense. But they had no chance to escape in any direction. For the Israelites who had been fleeing towards the desert, well, they turned around because it was a feint. So now you have the full frontal assault coming at you again. And you have your heart melting because your city's burning. For when Joshua and all Israel saw the ambush had taken the city and the smoke was going up to the city, they turned around. They attacked the men of Ai, verse 22. And the men of ambush also came out of the city against them so that they were caught in the middle with the Israelites on both sides. They now have a two-front war and no place to go for safety and they have no reserve to help them. Israel cut them down, leaving neither survivors nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive. They brought him to Joshua, their general. Verse 24, when Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them and where every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites, they returned to Ai and they killed all who were inhabitants in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day. All the people of Ai is wiped off the map. For Joshua did not draw back the hand held out in his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and the plunder as the Lord had instructed Joshua. Again, if Achan would have just waited on God, everything he wanted was waiting. But when we get ahead of God, a lot of things we don't want are waiting. All right, verse 28. So Joshua burned eye and made a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day, to the day of the writing of the book of Joshua. And he hung the king of Ai on a tree. Uh, that would be in Hebrew, he sort of impaled him on the tree. And he left him there only until evening. And then at sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the king of Ai's body down from the three and throw it to the entrance of the city. And they raised a large pile of rocks, which remain to this day. So that's the battle, but that's not the end of the chapter. After the battle, they move and they go somewhere else. We'll talk about that in a second. Verse 30, then Joshua built on Mount Ebal. Now, Mount Ebal is in the central of Israel, and uh, it's next to Mount Gerizim. There's a valley between them. This is not I. He has moved his people to this other place, and we'll talk about that in a second. Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal, an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
Why? Because as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites, he built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses. What kind of altar? An altar of uncut stones where no iron tool had been used. And then they offered to the Lord two kinds of offerings, burnt offerings for sin and fellowship offerings that the people could eat and enjoy and, 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 and fellowship together. And there in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on the stones on those, those mountains the law of Moses, which had been written. And all Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials, judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it. Well, who carried it? The priests, who were Levites. And half of the people stood on one mountain, Mount Gerizim, and half of them stood on Mount Ebal. And the the priests are in the middle, in the valley, with the Ark of the Covenant. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had firmly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's another part of the Bible told him to do this. Verse 34. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, just as it is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua didn't read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and the children and the aliens who lived among them. All right. So we've already spoken about the defeat uh, of I because Israel failed to inquire of the Lord, so they didn't know about Achan's sin. But friend, what you need to understand in chapter 8 is chapter 8 comes after Israel's dealt with its sin. It's purged the sin. It's confessed to the Lord. It has made itself. It's done what it needs to do to get back in right relationship with God. They confess their sin. And there were some consequences, but they got to the other side of those consequences. Now, what I want you to see is the Lord does not throw his people away. He does not cast his people aside. Exactly what the Bible tells us in 1 John is true even in the Old Testament. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That was true in the Old Testament in Joshua 7 and 8. That was true in 1 John. Uh, so the Lord, the Lord is ready to turn the page. The Lord is ready to start a, a fresh chapter, literally chapter 8, in, in the lives of his people. And I want you to see this. It is super important. If you're going to get back on track, if you've spiritually derailed, you need to understand this first. And then we can work through all the practical bits. But you've got to get this in your head. We need to remember, this is point one today, we need to remember that failure is not usually final for those who follow the God of grace. I'm going to say that again. We need to remember that failure is not usually final for those who follow the God of grace. You know, there are rare instances in Scripture where Uzzah steadies the ark and, and he's not supposed to touch it and the holiness of God kills him. There's an instance in the New Testament where Ananias and Sapphira uh, lied and then they, they, after giving the opportunity to tell the truth, they lied and they died. <laughs> but, but most of the time, God is slow to anger and abounding in love and gracious. He's a God of second chances and third chances and 38th chances and 348 chances. And I don't know how long you've been a Christian, but probably you've got a bunch of chances. huh? Because we worship a God of, of grace. You know, there's a hymn writer. He says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Does that resonate with you? Christians have sung it for a few hundred years all around the world because it resonates. The Apostle Paul, who faithfully followed God, this is what he wrote. He wrote, I'm going to paraphrase here, the stuff I want to do for God, I don't always do. And the stuff I really don't want to do because it's against God, I often find myself, and he's the Apostle Paul, writer of 13 books of our New Testament. So we have a problem, and the problem is we, we, we struggle with sin. Now, we have another problem. It is critically important 
That, that when we want to get back on track, we start with remembering that we serve a God of grace and that God will restore the repentant. Now, you've got to repent. You can't just stay in your sin. But if you repent, God is willing to work in us. However, we have an adversary and his name is the devil. And the adversary, is, he's called the adversary in some verses and he's called the accuser of the brethren. And this is really the one-two punch of the enemy. You see, our adversary is pernicious, he's insidious, and he is devious. And so he applies a twofold strategy to knock us out of the game. And it's as subtle as it is powerful. And you see, the very same devil who tempts us, do this thing that God has forbidden. You can get away with it. You can pour hot coals in your laps and you can get away with it. The other guy can't, but you can. Temp, 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 right? And he puts whatever cheese on the trap that you're attracted to. So if it's lust, if it's greed, if it's pride, that's the cheese, right? He doesn't put Limburger or something disgusting you don't want. He puts Swiss or whatever, right? He wraps the Swiss in bacon. He knows, right? So, so, so here is the devil and he tempts us. Now what happens once we finally give in to the temptation and we put our hand on the trap and the, 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 then the trap springs and we're caught. What does he do one second after he tempts us? He doesn't keep tempting us. He starts accusing us. A temptation, he took it. Accusation. Now let's take him down. That's his plan. And so immediately, the same devil who seconds before tempts us starts to accuse us. Uh, immediately, relentlessly, he condemns us. He says how dirty we are. And we are because we've sinned. How unworthy we are. How, how guilty we are. And then he lies to us. And he says, God doesn't want to be around you anymore. Have you ever felt that? Yeah, you've taken the cheese. Now you stink. You smell like Limburger. Your thumb is swollen. You're caught in the trap. And the first thing the devil said, God doesn't want to be around you anymore. In fact, you know what you need to do, Sean? You need to hide from God. You're so dirty. The best strategy, stay away from God. Stay away from God's word. Stay away from God's people. Stay away from God's house. Stay away. And you know, that's exactly the opposite of what the God of the Bible tells sinners to do in that situation. The devil's lying to you. If you've got your finger caught in the trap, if you've taken the cheese, if you're not where you need to be, if you're spiritually derailed, the devil's lying and saying, run farther, hide more. Because here's what the Bible says in James 4. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Deal with your sin. Repent. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That is, you, you, you want one thing, you want to honor the Lord, but you want another thing, you want to do this, you know, take the cheese. And, and he says... Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourself before the Lord, and the Lord will lift you up. Friend, understand if you're willing to deal with your sin, God is more than willing to deal with you again. Because failure is usually not final, because we serve a God of grace. Grace isn't a license to sin, but it's a reality. We're saved by grace, we're kept by grace, and a lot of times Christians need to remember that we have access to grace. If you look at some significant people in the Bible, you're going to see that wonderful people, let's take, I don't know, if there was someone in the Bible who had a heart for God, he would be a man after God's own. Is there a guy like that? Yeah, his name is? Now, David is a man of God. So of God, he does wonderful things. Of man, he does some not so wonderful things. 
There's a lot of them. Uh, but one of them that he's very famous for is, is David makes a royal hash of his life. He commits adultery. He has a conspiracy. He leads to the eventual murder of Ahithophel, his advisor's grandson, and his loyal servant, who's one of his mighty men's slaughter, Uriah the Hittite, dies when Uriah the Hittite was one of David's special defenders. Like, it's terrible. And then later... <laughs> He has a census. He wants to count his army to see if he can trust in his army instead of his Lord. That's after he has the problem with the adultery and the murder. Because David's man. Now here's the thing. When David repented, the God of grace worked in David's life. And David was able to serve God again in both occasions. Think about that. In the New Testament, there's a guy named John Mark, and he diverts, uh, deserts the ministry and, 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 and says, you know, I'm just, uh, he was called to help, and then he ran away, and Paul says, I don't want anything to do with him, and Barnabas says, I'll work with him. Paul says, I don't want anything to do with him. By the end of Paul's life, Paul writes that, Bar that John Mark is now a useful servant of Jesus. He was restored. Restored so much that the Paul who wanted nothing to do with his failure said, no, 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 this kid is able to serve me. And do you know who writes one of our four Gospels? The Gospel of Mark is written by John Mark the Deserter. I want you to notice in our text that after Israel dealt with its sin in chapter 7, God invites his people back to the work of the Lord. Seek ye first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Verse 1, then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, take the whole army with you, go up and attack I. For I have delivered into the hands, uh, into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. So the very first thing, if you want to get back on track, is you've got to remember that failure is not usually final for those who serve the God of grace. The second thing we need to do to get back on track, after we have a mental reset, that God isn't finished with me, I need to cleanse myself, I need to repent, I need to run to God instead of from God and ask him to put me back in the game. Number two, we must look to the Lord for encouragement towards renewed obedience instead of listening to the world and the devil and the flesh and its discouragement about our past disobedience. I'm going to say that again. We must look to the Lord for encouragement towards renewed obedience instead of listening to the world, the flesh, and the devil's discouragement about our past disobedience. The devil's going to throw it up in your face every chance he gets. The world's going to throw the fact that you weren't a perfect Christian up in your face and your own flesh is going to say, they're right. Ever felt that way? You see, Satan and the world and the flesh are... Absolutely different from God in this passage. How does God begin his invitation to his people in verse 1? He says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, what? Do not be afraid. In fact, that's the most common command of Christ in all the Bible. Fear not. And the second thing he says, Do not be... Have you been discouraged or afraid? <laughs> yeah. That's what God opens with. He doesn't open with, go take the city. He opens with, do not be afraid... Do not be discouraged. Now, Satan is actively discouraging. Satan is saying, you guys just failed at I. You can't possibly win. Don't go out there. It's a certain death. The world is laughing, right? The world is saying, little old I is a thorn in your side, a city in ruins. You're not powerful. You're pitiful. Your army is laughable. Who are you, church, to make a difference in this world, in this day, in this place, in this situation? 
And then our own flesh begins to believe the press reports from the devil in the world, and we begin to get afraid. We get afraid, I failed last time. Maybe I failed the other time. Maybe I failed in this before that. So it probably means I'm going I'm to fail this time. Why even try? But here's the God of grace. And he's saying, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Sinning leaves us defeated. Sinning leaves us discouraged. Sinning leaves us dirty. But, but we must then ask the Lord for encouragement if we're going to get back on track. Because the world, the devil, and the flesh, they're not going to encourage us to get back on track and get back in the saddle. In our day, the world, the flesh, and the devil are having a field day. They are telling God's people, you are defined by your sin. And we're believing it. This is what the devil is doing today. Uh, the, the, the devil is saying, at your core, you are an addict. At your core, you are a homosexual. At your core, you are a liar. At your core, you, you are a, a glutton. You have this, this, this eating challenge. You, uh, at your core, whatever the sin is, this is who you are. You can't escape it. You can't avoid it. You can't get beyond it. You can't control it. You just have to accept it. Tell me this isn't what the world, the flesh, and the devil is telling Christians right now. Right? And so if you believe before you go to the battle, you're going to lose the battle, there's a good chance you're not even going to go to the battle. Right? But friends, I want you to understand that's not biblically true. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you've given your life to Christ Jesus, you are not at your core an addict, though you may struggle with addiction. You are a new creature and you have a new nature. And yeah, you may have failed yesterday, but that situation, that given temptation that you failed in does not mean that if you keep in step with the spirit and resist the devil, you can't have victory today. And that's the lie of the devil. The devil's lie is your past determines your future. And Christ says, no, 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 I'm the God of the future. See, Christ gives us hope. The devil gives us discouragement. And that brings us to our third point today. The first thing we have to do is remember that we serve the God of grace, so failure isn't usually final. And the second thing we need to do is we must look to the Lord for encouragement, not listen to the world, the flesh, and the devil that always wants to throw our past disobedience as a discouragement. The third thing we need to do to get back on track is this. Number three, we must follow God's plan diligently and not lean on what makes sense to us. Many Christians tell me their favorite verse in the Bible is lean not on your own understanding, Right? Follow the Lord, don't lean on your own understanding. Well, this point comes from this passage here. We must follow God's plan diligently and not lean on what makes sense to us. Look again at verses 1 to 9. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. And then he says, do it my way. How did they fight the battle in chapter 7? They took just a few men. And God says, take the whole army. God has a different plan. Well, it's a small city. Why do we need to take the whole army? doesn't matter. This is God's plan. Take the whole army. And then at the end of verse 2, he says, set an ambush behind the city. God says, I have not only take all the people, but do a, a military stratagem. And then verse 8, when you've taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. And this is the opposite of what they thought they should do. They only took a few men. They thought they could frontal assault I. They didn't have an ambush. They thought it's surely going to crumble. This is not a big deal. But their ideas were wrong. Their ideas were folly. God's plan was send the whole army, not just a few. God's plan was set an ambush behind the city. And God's plan worked. And Joshua and the spies' plan failed. 
If you and I are going to get back on track, we have to follow God's plan diligently and not just lean on what makes sense to us. God has written 66 love letters to us to give us advice on every conceivable area of consultation we could ever need. And the question is, Christian, are we in this book? Are we under those who open our eyes to the teachings of this book? Are we heeding what we're reading and what we're learning? Because a key to getting on back, back on track is to track with the Word of God. Is to track with Scripture and not merely do what seems right in our own eyes. Joshua not only followed what God said that day, but he started following what God had said in previous days. In the past, God had told the Israelites, I want you to utterly rid the land of the Canaanites. To leave behind no survivors... And, and because if you leave behind a survivor, it's going to prove to be a snare. It's going to cause pollution and dilution of God's people. And you're going to begin to adopt their ungodly practices. Now, critics read the Bible and they say, God just said wipe the whole people out. Wipe out all the Canaanites. Wipe out all the Hittites. Wipe out all the Amusites. Wipe, wipe out all the Amorites and Jebusites and all the other sites, right? <laughs> that sounds genocidal. Your God is a maniac. Well, wait a minute, friends. I want you to understand that God's call to Israel's obedience in battle to utterly wipe out these people was also God's means of his righteous judgment on those people. Because if you study those people, you're going to see that, that the Canaanite people, these peoples, were particularly wicked. I mean, the whole world is wicked, but there are places and times where it's more wicked. And this was a particularly wicked people. Their worship, as we've talked about earlier, involved the wanton, open sexual perversion coupled with the brutal slaughter of their own infants on superheated altars. It was wild, wanton, open sexual perversion and infanticide in some of the most painful ways you can imagine. And God said, you know what? When God originally said, I want you to go in there and take the land, he says, the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached full measure. You know what God was saying? I'm not ready to wipe them out. I'm still giving them time to repent. And hundreds of years went by, and they didn't. And eventually God said, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. No more babies are going to be slaughtered, and no more of this wanton, open perversion. I'm done. And he was going to use his people to sort that out. And so a key to getting back on track is to follow what the Lord is saying. The Canaanite sin had reached full measure and God would endure it no longer. So Joshua remembered the word of the Lord in Deuteronomy 7. And Deuteronomy 7 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drive out before you the many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations longer and stronger, larger and stronger than you. When the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, show them no mercy. So in Joshua 8, in verse 20, the Bible says, The men of Ai looked back, and they saw the city, and the smoke rising against the sky, and that the people had no chance to escape, for the Israelites had been fleeing uh, towards the desert. Well, they turned around, and they pursued their pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw the ambush and taken the city, the smoke was going up. They turned around and attacked the men of Ai. And the men of the ambush also came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the middle with fugitives on both sides. And Israel cut them down, leaving no survivors. And no fugitives. Except for one guy, they took the king of Ai and they brought him to the leader of the Israelites. So, is Joshua disobeying and not taking the king of Ai alive uh, versus killing him? Well, wait a minute. It's not the 
Joshua who does this, it's the troops. And the story's not over. When they take the king to Joshua, what does Joshua do? Yeah, verse 28. He hung the king on a tree, but he only left him until evening. And then at sunset, he had him taken down and ordered his body to be taken from the tree, thrown down to the entrance of the city gate, and then he raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Why did Joshua impale the king on a tree? Why did Joshua order the body uh, to be taken down at sunset? Couldn't be left up any longer. Why did Joshua order for that body to be buried immediately? Because in the ancient world, you would put your enemies, you know, heads on poles, or the Romans would crucify people as you enter the city, and they just leave you there to rot. So everybody go, ooh, don't mess with those people. They're pretty tough. And Joshua said, don't let this king stay past sunset. And the reason is because Joshua is following the word of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 21:22, the Bible says, if a man is guilty of a capital offense, he's to be put to death and his body is to be hung on a tree. And you must not leave his body on the tree overnight, but be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And you must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you. All of that stuff in the Old Testament is preparing for some stuff that's going to happen in the New Testament, isn't it? It's setting a stage because Jesus Christ is going to take the curse of sin. And he's going to take it on a cross, on a tree. He's going to be hung on a tree. And he's going to be let down at what time? Before sunset. And he's going to be buried that same day. Because this principle that they understood for justice when someone's really made a sin is going to be put upon God's son. And the, the greatest wickedness, all the sins of men, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life because it is through the death of Christ that we find redemption. Just as promised, he was hung on a tree. Just as promised, he was brought down at sunset. And you know what? Just as he promised on the third day, he rose again. Because Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, and so Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we may be saved. But today we're in Joshua 8, and Joshua 8 is foreshadowing Jesus by about 1,400 years. But today we're looking at how do we get back on track. And, and, and we do that by following God's plan diligently. Did you know the Bible's not a list of rules? It's a love letter from our living, loving Lord. And that means because it's not just a list of rules but a love letter, there are some things that aren't always black and white in our red level letter Bibles. Jesus didn't save us to make us Pharisees who know the word of the Lord, but don't know the Lord of that word. God invites you and I to a personal relationship with himself. Jesus calls us to abide with himself. He doesn't call us to merely memorize stone tablets. The Pharisees memorized what they never internalized. They didn't have a relationship with God. They had a transaction with God. I'll do these things and you bless me. And God said, but I want to make you my child so that you walk with me. So this is a, a nuanced thing. We have to learn to listen to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. We must keep in step with the Holy Spirit. We mustn't grieve the Holy Spirit. And, and Sometimes some Christians have pharisaical tendencies and we sort of remake the Trinity as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. That's not the Trinity. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit wrote the Holy Bible, 
So the God's promptings are never going to, the Spirit's promptings are never going to contradict what he's already said in Scripture. But there are going to be times where, do I marry this person or that person? Do I, do I move to this city or that city? And you're going to be hard-pressed to find that answer in Leviticus. You're going to have to know Jesus and know him well enough to listen. Is this the one? Is this my way? There's broad paths. Don't do this, do this, Scripture. And then there's some things that you're going to need a personal relationship to figure out. You with me? You can't just be a Pharisee. You must be a follower, you see. So that brings us to point four. We must learn to follow God's Spirit's promptings and his timings and not merely what we tend to lean on, which is our intellect, our emotions, our experiences, and our traditions. I'll say that again. We must learn to follow God's Spirit's promptings and his timings and not merely our intellect, emotions, uh, experiences and traditions. God said in our story, set an ambush. What was the signal that God had prearranged? It's a trick question. He didn't prearrange a signal. He said, set an ambush. Well, how would they know when to rise up an ambush? It is in the midst of God's people being faithful in battle that God says just what my brother said. They did what they knew. They set an ambush. But how do we know what, what's the signal? Is the bat light going to come on? And we, okay, now we attack. God didn't say what the signal was. Now look at verse 15. And Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled towards the desert. And all the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua, and they were lured away from the city. And not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who didn't go after Israel. And they left the city open. They went in pursuit in Israel. Verse 18. Then, then for the first time, the Lord said to Joshua, here's the signal. Lift up your javelin. What do you have in your hand? Moses had a, a simple staff. That became what God used to redeem him. Joshua was a general. He had a javelin. Lift that up. And the people back there instantly knew. How did they know? God told them. They knew that was the signal. This is what we need. You have to listen to the promptings of God. You can't just be a rule follower. You have to be a Christ follower. So friends, even in the heat of battle... Joshua needed to listen to the promptings of God. There was a, a timing of God. Uh, but we too often, what do we do? We look to our intellect and we say, what do I think is right here? That's what we should do. Or we look to our emotions. What do I feel is right here? That's what we should do. Or we look to our experience. What turned out all right last time? Let's do that again. Or we listen to someone else's intellect, emotions, or experiences. Because those are what our traditions are, right? So whatever somebody else told us to do, that's what we'll do again. But we need to look to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to be listening so closely that we can hear his promptings even over the noise of battle. Even when the heat of battle is upon us, well, we're going to find that it's just us and not Jesus who's running our battles. And we're going to find we're, we're in a hard place. Amen? Okay, so once we get back on track, we've had four principles how to get on track. How about we don't get back off track again? Wouldn't it be great if there was a principle of, hey, once you're on track, here's how you stay on track. And that's our fifth and final principle today. How do we stay on track? And the answer is this. We must saturate ourselves with Scripture, and we must surround ourselves with kingdom-committed saints. Point five, how do we stay on track? You saturate yourself with Scripture, and you surround yourself with kingdom-committed saints. Verse 30, Joshua built... On Mount Ebal, an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites, and he built it according to what is written where? In the book of the law of Moses. In the Bible. Oh. 
An altar of uncut stones, which no iron tool had been used on it, and they offered it to the Lord, burnt offerings and sacrifice fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses. What's that? The Bible. Just as he had written, and all Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant, facing those who carried it, the priests and those of the Levites. Half the people stood in the front of Mount Gerizim, half of them on Mount Ebal. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people. So they're doing what was written in the Bible. And afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law. What's that? The Bible. The blessings and the curses just as has been written in the book of the law. What's that? The Bible. And there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, that's the Bible, that Joshua did not read, the Bible, to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women, the children, the aliens who lived among them. I want you to turn for just a second to Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27, because in order to understand what God is having them do in Joshua 8, what Joshua is doing in Joshua 8, you need to understand Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27 if you're lost, the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, book five, just a little bit to the left of Joshua. Deuteronomy 27, which is between 26 and 28 if you're still lost, and beyond that, you need help, okay? Uh, Deuteronomy 27.1 says, Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, keep all these commands I give you today. When you have crossed the Jordan... Moses said, in a future day, I can't cross the Jordan, but when you cross the Jordan to the land your God is giving you, you're going to need to set up some large stones, and you're going to coat them with plaster. Well, why would you coat stones with plaster? Because you're going to write on them. Verse 3, write on them the words of this law. When you've crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord your God your fathers promised you. And when you have crossed the Jordan, I want you to do this in a certain place. Where? Mount Ebal. Where are they today? Mount Ebal. Where were they earlier in chapter 8? I, they left I to follow the word of God, to go where the word of God said. He said, set up stones on Mount Ebal as I command you today, coat them with plaster, build an altar there. What did Joshua do on Mount Ebal? He built an altar there to the Lord your God, an altar of what? Stones. Yeah. Do not use any iron tool upon them. What did Joshua do? Built an altar of stones. He didn't use any iron tool. Build an altar to the Lord your God with field stones and offer burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. What did Joshua do? He had two kinds of offerings. Offerings for sin, burnt offerings, and offerings to connect them one to another. One to connect to God, sin offerings, burnt offerings, where the, altar, the offering is consumed before the Lord, and fellowship offerings where you eat some of it with your friends. And you shall write very clearly all the words of this law and these stones you have set up. Now skip down to verse 12, please. When you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim. Which tribes? I want Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. Where are they going to stand? Mount Gerizim. And I want these tribes to stand on Mount Ebal. The people on Mount Gerizim, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, they're going to pronounce the blessing. So every time when we read from Scripture and there's a blessing, those people will say, Amen! And that means so be it. Let God do that. We follow the word. And then these people over here, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan, and Naphtali, they're going to be on the other hill, and they're going to say amen whenever it's a cursing. So if the word says don't do this, or I'm going to cause this problem, then those people on that mount, they're going to say amen. And the Levites shall shout to all the people of Israel in a loud voice. They're standing in the middle of the valley. Two guys are on the mountains. Two, two sets. Then all the people shall say amen. If we're going to say on track, we're not going to go off track. We have to be saturated in Scripture. Look at how saturated God had asked them to be. Number one, visually, they etched the Scripture into the plaster so the words were visible to all the people. 
And then notice where God had him put them. He said, uh, put the, uh, the very center of the Holy Land. If you take a map and you say, where is Gerizim? Where is Ebal? It's not off on the top. It's not down on the bottom. It's not off to the left. It's not off to the right. It's right in the center. If you come to the center of where God's people stay, you should find the word of God. And it should be visible. <laughs> okay? Uh, notice where God had him put it in the very center. So it was central. It was visible. And then God said, make sure it's audible. <laughs> God instructed them, I want you to use the natural acoustics that I have built. There's no microphone, so what I'm going to have you do is I'm going to have all the saints standing staggered up one hillside, and the other set of saints are going to stand staggered on the other hillside, and in the middle, in a loud voice, the priests are going to say the law, and that sound is going to carry up to the farthest person, to the alien, to the widow, to the child. Look at who's there. So it's not only central and visible and audible, but he said, make it universal. All the people are going to shout. They're not just going to listen. They're going to respond, amen, to the good stuff, amen, to the not good stuff, amen. We better not do that. <laughs> That's how you stay on track. You understand that there's amen and there's amen, <laughs> right? So half of the tribes are situated on Mount Gerizim. They would say the blessings, and the blessings come from obedience. And half would be on Mount Ebal, and they would say amen to the cursings that come from disobedience. And where does God put the altar? Now, if you and I were building this, if we did it our way, we'd say, put the altar in the center where everyone can see it. Right? Where it's central, because that's where the Ark of the Lord is, and the priests are. And where the priests are is where... It's not what he says. The altar is not put on the center. It's put on Mount Gerizim. No. It's put on Mount Ebal. Why? Well, where do sacrifices take place? On the altar. And where do we need... A sacrifice for our situation. We, we need sacrifices to cover our sin. And which of the two mountains is the mountain that's the mountain of cursing for disobedience, for sin? And that's where God puts the altar. How do God's people maintain what they've just attained? We saturate ourselves in the word of God. And we surround ourselves with the committed people of God. The New Testament tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed. And then it says it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the first thing it says that, is that all scripture is God-breathed. What does that mean? That means that every scripture from Genesis to Revelation, who's the author ultimately? It's not man's word, it's God's word. So if God is the ultimate author of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that means obscure books like Leviticus that we don't know much about and Habakkuk that we can't spell, all the way to Revelation, all the way to the verses we know like John 3.16. All of those verses do four things according to the Word of God. They teach us this is the way. And they correct us when we've left the way. But now we're standing over here and I go, well, I'm not on the way anymore. Well, that's good because it can rebuke me so I get back on the... On the way. And then it can train me that I stay on the way. Friends, all scripture and only scripture, not sermons, not good intentions, not church attendance, all scripture comes from God and it is useful to teach us this is the way, to correct us when we've left the way, to rebuke us so we get back on the way, and to train us so we. And that's why you need to saturate yourself in scripture. But we also must do this we must also surround ourselves. With the committed kingdom-minded saints. Not every Christian, some of us are double-minded, some of us are, are carnal, some of us are running away from God. You must saturate yourselves with committed people of God. Because if we're not going to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, 
We must heed Hebrews 3.13. The Bible says, you know how you're not to get hardened? You encourage one another daily. Christians who are on fire for Jesus help me not grow cold for Jesus. Is that true for you? And if you take a Christian who's white hot on fire for Jesus and you take that burning ember and you set it over on the other side of the garden away from all the other fires, do you know what happens in winter pretty quickly? That white hot ember gets colder. And I have never met a Christian that can violate the Bible and forsake the gathering together of the saints, not put themselves under the saturation of Scripture and under committed believers who've been able to stay warm for Christ for a long period. They've always, always, always grown cold. And great challenge has come. So Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not give up meeting together. Church is inconvenient. You could be golfing, you could be warm. But you're here. Why? Not because it's Sunday, not because it's ritual, not because it's Pharisees, but because God's word says, do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but you need to encourage one another. When you leave church, you should leave encouraged. And instead of judging, was I encouraged today? You should say, was I an encouragement? The point of church is to take hot coals, put them together, and make more heat for Jesus. And we do that by putting the gasoline of the word of God upon that fire. And you get some people on fire for Jesus. Proverbs 27, 17 is true. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. If you want to be maintaining the path, saturate yourself in Scripture. Intentionally and consistently put your family under the Word of God. Read it at home. Sit under it at church. Listen to powerful preachers in their podcasts. You can have some of the best preachers in the world come to your home. And you can listen to it when you're on the run or having a run or with the runs or any kind of running. You can hear the word of God. Some of the best preachers in the world. No other generation has been able to do that. Our generation can. We have no reason not to saturate ourselves in the word of God. And we have no reason not to surround ourselves with committed believers. Because 1 Corinthians 15.33 is true. And it says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Jesus was a friend to sinners. But he never gave in to their sin. And friend, if I'm going to be an evangelist, if I'm going to have people in my life, I'm going to have to be around people who don't know Jesus. If I'm going to help restore people who love Jesus but have fallen off the path, then I'm going to need to gently restore them, you who are spiritual. But the only way I'm going to do that is if I have enough fire in my tank to be white hot for Jesus. And to do that, I need to be under the word of God and surrounded by committed people of God. That's how you stay on track. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so much in here, we can't even scratch the surface. I had uh, 30 pages of notes just in research on this passage. Your word is a treasure. Your word is immeasurably powerful. It is from you. Uh, there's no other book that we can read. We can read books and be moved in our spirit, or we can read books and be you know, uh, excited in our emotions. We can read books and be uh, intellectually given new information, but this book changes us. It is the word of God. It is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It can, in the very same passage, cut me to the quick and say, hey, get back on the path. And it can also shave off that which is holding me back and, and, and give me something to lean on so I can, I can brave the weak. And so I don't know what's going to come before my friends this week. I don't know what your plan is on what they're going to experience. I don't know what the world, the flesh, and the devil is going to throw to them. But I pray that they would lean on the encouragement from Jesus and not the discouragement. That they would look to the encouragement to be faithful today and not the discouragement of when they weren't faithful yesterday. And I pray that you would surround them 
with white-hot Christians, and that this church would be a place that's full of white-hot Christians, and that through it there would be much kingdom building and not mischief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.